verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Persasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their, their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you... For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on, on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the people. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Well, it is good to be together today. We appreciate everyone's presence, especially if you're visiting with us. We're certainly delighted that you're here with us, and we would uh, encourage you to come back visit anytime you have the opportunity. Primarily, this morning, we will be in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9, but we use the, the previous verses kind of as a backstory to uh, lead us to what we want to talk about in uh, that particular passage this morning. The message of Deuteronomy was prefaced by Israel being on the cusp of entering into the land of promise and having to engage in battle to receive that gift from God, to receive that inheritance. Of course, they had been freed from Egypt, from the slavery of Pharaoh, and they had been wandering in the wilderness for some 40 years during which time a rebellious generation died. Those who refused to go in and, and take the land of promise at the first opportunity given. However, before this generation was allowed to enter into the land to embark upon this great battle that was about to unfold, Moses delivered a series of sermons to the nation of Israel to the people who God had chosen as His own. And that's what Deuteronomy is. It is a series of sermons delivered to God's people as they stood ready to enter into that land of promise. Now the contents of those sermons were received by Israel during the very last month of Moses' life. It's a short uh book as far as the time frame covers 30 days or so and they were given 
to the generation of Israelites who had been born or who were very young as they uh, began that 40-year wandering or that additional 38 years. Now, they had either been very young or not yet born during that time, so they had not uh, been of age to have realized the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, or maybe hadn't even been born yet. And thus, we have the book, the name of the book, Deuteronomy, because that's what Moses is doing. He is repeating this law. And that's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law. Now, it wasn't a second law given in addition to the first law. It was simply a repeating of the law given on Mount Sinai for the benefit of that generation of Israelites, the nation as a whole, because they were all too young to have uh, recognized the law being given on Mount Sinai or yet they had been born. And so that's what Moses is doing. He wanted them to... Uh, have the knowledge that this new generation did not have that the older generation did have. They needed to have the knowledge that God was with them, just as He was with those who had come before them, their fathers, those who had died in the wilderness. They understood God was with them. They simply had to suffer the consequences of their sin. Now, why did they need the assurance that God was with them? Well, they were about to begin a fight for their lives. They were about to embark on a battle like they had never known and they needed the assurance that God was with them, that God loved them and that He would be by their side. Now, of course, this section of Deuteronomy encourages Israel to know and to understand that God is a faithful God, that they could rest in Him, that they could trust in Him, that they could believe in Him, that they could depend on Him, and that He would see them through this uh, coming battle, or this series of battles uh, on which they were to undertake, and that He would always bless the faithful. Now we need that same encouragement today. We need that same encouragement today because we live in a time as all of God's people who have ever lived have lived in such a time when we need God's assurance that He loves us, that He's there for us, and that He has a great love and a power toward the faithful. We need that assurance. We need that given to us. Now our faithful God, and that's the title of this morning's sermon, our faithful God will provide, and there are reasons we can understand that, and they're given to us in this text. Now this is uh, obviously a text taken, a passage taken from the Old Testament. But the Old Testament gives us something that is very important. It allows us an insight into God's nature. It allows us an insight into God's character. And God doesn't change. There's no wavering when it comes to God, James said. The writer of Hebrews said, Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is God. God doesn't change. So when we look at the character of God, and we look at the the nature of God, and that's displayed for us in the Old Testament, we can be assured that that's the same God that we worship today. God is our faithful God, and we can understand that because of the passion 
that He has for His people. And that's our first point. Now we learn the reality of His passion in verse number 7 of our text. God, it says, had set His love on His people. In other words, we might say that uh, uh, God set His heart on Israel. It's clear. It's made clear to us that God loves His people. God's nature is that He loves His people. And that hasn't changed. God loved His people then. He loves His people now. And He continued then and He continues today to take the necessary steps to allow His people to be able to come and abide in His presence. Now that's a process, isn't it? That's a requirement. For someone to be able to stand in the presence of God, they have to be justified in the presence of God. Now in the Old Testament period, particularly under the law of Moses, and even in the patriarchal time period, it had to be placed on their account. In other words, they were faithful under a law given at that time that looked for a coming Messiah. So if they were uh, faithful under that law, it was placed on their account that they were faithful. And then when Christ died on the cross, His blood forgave their sins also because they were faithful under the law given at the time. And so really, nothing has changed. The reality of God's passion has some very important characteristics to us that I think we need to understand. When we look in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, we understand that His love is an everlasting love. It is an eternal love. God will never stop loving. That doesn't mean He won't punish but it does mean He will never stop loving. His love is an expensive love, isn't it? Romans 5 verse 8, costing the life of His very only begotten Son. His love is an extensive love. John three sixteen. it was extended to the whole world, to anyone who would choose to take advantage of His offering His love. It was offered to everyone. When we look in... In John 3, 16, we see the greatest things in the Bible. We see the greatest love. We see the the greatest number of people. We see the greatest blessing that can be given, and we see the greatest punishment if that blessing has not been received. But because of those characteristics, it is important for the world to understand how to gain the benefit of, of God's passion. He told those during the time of Moses when this, when this series of sermons recorded for us in Deuteronomy, the second law was given, he gave them the, uh, uh, the process on how to receive blessings from him. At the same time, he mentioned in the Deuteronomy that there were curses that were also attached to not doing the things that God asked them to do. There's always been blessings and cursings when it came to God. If we're obedient, God will bless us. If we're disobedient, God will certainly curse us. Of course, when we we understand in today's world, the Christian life, there's a plan of salvation. We have to follow those words that Christ spoke, John 8, 24. We have to believe that He is who He said He was. That's, That's paramount. That's fundamental and foundational to our Christianity, isn't it? That Christ is who He said He was. If Christ isn't who He said He was, He was a con artist. He was a sham. 
He was a liar. And we know that he was none of those. We have the proof and, and we can read the proof. We have to repent of all our past sins. That's what God requires, Acts 17, 30 and 31. Because there's a coming day of judgment. We have to make the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And we do that for a couple reasons, right? We do it for ourselves. We don't do it necessarily for God's benefit. He knows whether we believe or not. Right? He knows all things. But, but we do it for our benefit and for those around us. It's encouraging when we hear other people confess the sweet name of Jesus. And we know that we have brethren of like precious faith. Of course, then being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin. And we see that unfold in Acts chapter 8. We see the Ethiopian eunuch being taught by Philip about Jesus and then they come to a certain water and Philip, uh, the eunuch says, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, Thou mayest if thou believest. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. And then he went on his way rejoicing. He went on his way rejoicing because he knew sin had been lifted as a burden from his life. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But that rest is conditional, isn't it? It's conditional. We have to remain faithful, Revelation 2, verse 10. We have to live a life like Paul lived, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, fighting the good fight all the way to the end in receiving that crown of righteousness. But you know, sometimes we don't always do that. Sometimes we make mistakes in this life, and then we have to access God's grace through the second law of pardon. We don't have to be immersed in water again if we commit a sin while after having obeyed the gospel. We have to come to God in repentance, in confession of those sins. Publicly, privately, it depends on the sin, right? We have to ask God to forgive us, and we know that He will do that. See, there is a reality to God's passion. He set His love on His people. He provided all the necessary things to allow them to be able to stand justified in His sight. But then I want us to also notice there is a reaction because of His compassion. There's a reaction on both sides. God had a great passion. That's a reality. Now notice His reaction. He set His love on His people. And then the text said, or says, He chose them. He chose them. Can someone love a person yet not choose them? I think when we look in uh, the gospel accounts, and uh, we see that many of the chief priests believed on Jesus, yet they would not confess Him because of fear of being cast out of the synagogue. I think to, to accept Jesus and to believe Jesus is to love Jesus in a sense. But they didn't choose Jesus. See, God set His affection, set His love, set His passion on His people, but then at the same time, He chose them. Now, choose means to elect, to decide, or to select. God chose, He elected, and He selected His people to be saved. Of all the people and the nations of the world at that time, He chose the smallest, most insignificant nation 
that was in existence. He chose a people who were small. They didn't have a raging army that could go on their own to feed any other nation probably. But He chose them as His people and through whom He would bring the Messiah so the rest of the world could be saved. Paul explained how God's election works this way. Notice Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 3. He explained, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. God's eternal purpose was for a group of people to be saved. Not individual people to be saved. It doesn't say that He chose individually this person to be saved, that person to be lost. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can receive all spiritual blessings if we are in Him. See, a group of people was elected. Now, we can be a part of that group. For God so loved the world, right? Not a portion of the world. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. Not a portion of the world. So He elected a group of people. Those who accept Christ, obey Christ, and live for Christ can be elected. They can be a part of that, right? Again, not individually. Those who were being saved on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.47, were added to the church. That's synonymous. If you're added to the church, you're saved. If you follow the plan of salvation, you're going to be saved. At the same time, you're added to the church. Not individuals who were elected. A group of people and then the individual chose. See, that's the reaction also, right? Of, of our accepting God's passion, His love. Seeing the reality and then we have the reaction. And we have to do that. We have to do that. Those who are not going to be saved in the end, they're all going to be lost for the same reason. Every single one of them. Notice what Paul warned. 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning with verse 7. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not really two things. The one is a result of the first. Those who are going to be lost are going to be lost because they don't know God. As a result, they will not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we cannot know God either through ignorance. Now, that happens because I haven't searched it out for myself. Or through simply disobedience. I searched it out, but I choose not to know God. And that's how we'll be lost. We see God's faithfulness in His passion for His people. See, the Israelites needed to be encouraged. They needed to be reminded of that passion, right? The things that God did. He set His love on them. He chose them. We see the reality. We see the reaction. But we also see His faithfulness in His performance. God had a history with these people, didn't He? God has a history 
with all who have ever obeyed His laws concerning salvation. Because God chose His people, He delivered them. That's His performance, right? Our second point. When someone chose God, He delivered them. God did everything to deliver His people from persecution. He brought them up out of Egypt, right? He delivered the obedient. Now, we have to keep that in mind. He delivered the obedient. He brought them up out of Egypt. Now, we all remember what happened in Exodus. We are very familiar with the ten plagues of Egypt, right? All the things that happened leading up to plague number ten. When we look at the first nine plagues, we don't see anything that Israel had to do on their part outside of they were God's people at that time and God was making a point. He caused things to happen in Egypt. It didn't happen in the land of Goshen. It didn't get dark in the land of Goshen. Locusts didn't take over in the land of Goshen. There weren't flies and frogs and, and water turned to blood. Those things didn't happen in Goshen. But then we come up to the tenth plague and it was the the angel who killed the firstborn of every house man and animal and so they had to do something anyone who did not strike the blood on the doorposts one above and on the sides they would suffer also so they had to do something that's the performance of God see he requires something that we have to perform we have to be obedient. We have to do He's faithful. We have to be faithful. And so we see his reaction that he only saves the obedient. What would have happened if, if all of Israel had not done that simple task that God asked? We'd be reading a whole different history, wouldn't we? They would have perished in Egypt. Now, it's not going to throw off God's plan. Something would have happened. His providence would have prevailed. But we would be reading a different history had they not been obedient. But because they were obedient, He delivered them. Those who will not be saved are going to not be saved because they don't know God. They don't have a relationship. They haven't been obedient. He delivers the obedient. Those who rebelled against God were unfaithful to Him. They refused to trust in Him. We see that in the wilderness, right? They weren't delivered. They were delivered out of Egypt. They never made it into the promised land because they did not obey God and He chose not to deliver them. And that's what happens today. God redeems the faithful because there's a process, right? There's a, there are shows of obedience, acts of obedience. When we, when we think of repentance... We have to demonstrate works worthy of repentance. That's what Paul demanded. We have to bring forth evidence that we have repented. Anyone can say, I repent, right? Paul encouraged those in Galatia saying this, Galatians 4, beginning with verse 4. He said, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth His Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God 
through Christ. God redeems those who are faithful. He delivers the faithful. And we know that that is conditional, right? Because those same people that He promised to redeem, He made another statement to them. Galatians chapter 5 verse 4, He reminded them. Now remember, what was the whole purpose of Galatians? They were trying to leave God. There was a problem, okay? They were trying to go back to the old law, and He said, He reminded them, You have become estranged from Christ. Why? Because you who attempt to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. So we have to be careful, right? Those in Galatia and we today, we, we've obeyed the gospel. And when that happened, we have been delivered from the bondage of sin, Romans 6, 1 through 7. He delivers us, right? And we receive the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 through 14. But God didn't stop there. He didn't stop there then. He doesn't stop there now. He delivers the faithful, but then He developed them. He developed them. He expects that from us today. Notice in verse 6 of our passage, God called Israel a holy people and a special people. What does the word holy mean? The word holy means to be set apart. Set apart, right? For God's use. The word special carries with it the idea of a treasure. We are, or God's faithful are a treasured people who have been set apart for His use. We see that in Israel, right? They were small. They, they didn't have physically the ability to be a powerhouse nation, but they were a treasured people. God set them apart. He developed them into being a holy nation. He develops us today. Peter described Christians this way, 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He said, Christians are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. He says, because of that, you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Christians are God's treasure. We're set apart. We need to, to appreciate that, right? Now, God isn't saying to us that if we choose not, to accept Him, everything's going to work out in the end, it's going to be great. That's not what He's saying. We, we have to understand that we're set apart for His purpose and that that is directly connected to our salvation. We can choose not to be faithful to God, but it won't work out well for us in the end, right? God's giving us an opportunity. The whole reason for being delivered and for being developed is because at one time the delivered... We're lost in sin, Ephesians 2, verse 1. By necessity, by necessity, if we're going to be saved, we have to come up out of sin. We have to come out of sin, right? We have to be delivered. That's, that's paramount, right? Those in Ephesus chose to leave sin. We see that in Ephesians 2, 2 through 3. They did that so they could be delivered and developed, and that remains true for us today. So when we think of our faithful God. We see His faithfulness in His passion for His people. We see it in His performance, the things that He's done. We can, we can go all the way back and we can see what God's done for us. But we can also see it in His promises. We see it in His promises. And let's start with His name. 
In our text, he's called certain things, right? He's faithful to his promises because of his name. He is called God, the Lord thy God, and the faithful God. Each of those names are significant. Each of those names are characteristics or they point to characteristics of Israel's God. Let's notice this. He's called God. That identifies him as the one over all things. He's in charge, right? That encompasses his power, his glory, his influence, his wonder. And that is the truth for today. He maintains all things, doesn't he? Notice how the writer of Hebrews described Christ's power. God, the second person of the Godhood, Hebrews 1 verse 3. He reminded his readers of the power and the deity of Christ when he said, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's called the Lord thy God. Lord, Jehovah, that's God's personal name. That's his covenant name. That's a very special name. Thy God, that points to and reminds the reader you have a personal relationship with God. Yahweh, Jehovah. It speaks to Him as one who keeps faith with His people. In other words, He is faithful. He'll do what He says He will do. The God we serve is faithful just as He was in the time of Israel. He's faithful to to help His people, isn't He? We see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We talked about that earlier. He'll provide a way of escape. He's faithful to help His people. He's faithful to those who He saves. Notice 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning with verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He that calleth you who also will do it. He remains faithful to His promises. If He says it, He'll do it. The writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 10, 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And He's faithful in His forgiveness of sin. If we'll repent, 1 John 1, verse 9. God is faithful to His promises because of His name. Of what those, what those names reveal about his character but he is also faithful because of his nature he's the faithful God that tells us something doesn't it that talks about how he supports how he confirms how he establishes it talks about one who can be believed we can trust in him he's faithful because of his nature We know He can be trusted. In verse 9 of our text, we're told that God keeps His covenants and mercy. Listen, He stands by His promises. He'll do what He says He'll do. And because of His perfect nature, we understand that friends may fail us. God never will. Because of His perfect nature, family may fail us. God never will. Our finances may fail us. God never will. Our feelings may fail us, but God never will. Our faith might fail us. God will never fail. He's not going to do that. 
when we look at the things that, that Paul reminded us in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, that whole list of, of things of why, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's going to separate us from the love of God? Nothing. It's not possible. The only thing that can separate us from the love of God is ourselves. God will never separate Himself from us as long as we're faithful. Our faithful God is one on whom we can count. Easily His his faithfulness is seen in His passion for His people, the performance that He has, has given to His people, and His promises that He's made to His people. For all God has provided for the world, you know that all He's ever asked for any of His people is simply obedience and faithfulness. Obedience is easy, isn't it? Not hard to be obedient. We can read what God demands from us, and that's a simple task. And faithfulness, anyone who's been saved, redeemed from sin, ought to willingly offer faithfulness to God. That's all he's ever asked. He has never asked for us something that that is too hard for us to accomplish. He's never asked for us anything he has not done and more so for our benefit. Christ went to the cross, shed his blood, gave himself, and all he asked for us, obey and be faithful. If you've never obeyed the gospel, do that today. Obey and be faithful. If you have and you've you've been unfaithful, come back to Him through repentance and confession and prayer. He'll forgive you. It's laid out for us. It's a simple plan to follow. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.